You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by John Cross of the Daily Mirror and by Dominic Fifield of The Athletic. Our World Cup build-up continues with an illuminating conversation with Owen Hargreaves. But first, we return to an all-too-familiar theme. Despite the semantics, Liverpool Football Club is up for sale. Depending on your point of view, it's either shrewd speculators cashing in or very rich men being unable to compete financially. Football's changing rapidly, John, isn't it? And not for the better? No, I've got serious doubts about it, really. It did surprise me, I must say, that the FSG have decided to put Liverpool up for sale, simply because I think that if you look at the other models of ownership in the in the big six, a lot of them feel as if there's still so much more to come from their clubs and the potential of English football, still so much growth and the valuations of, of the clubs compared to other sports teams, particularly in the States. Look at how they're compared, I think, as a value terms to other sporting franchises, as they like to call it, in the US. It's a totally different animal. But I do think it's reflective, isn't it, of the frustration of John W. Henry about the Super League. He clearly publicly apologised for getting it wrong. You know, if you talk to people around it, he was one of the main drivers at the time and was clearly on board with it. And I think a lot of them still feel that this issue is not going away. And where's it going to go next, really? I think that sort of the, the other big European nations are still working on this. You know, there's an ongoing court case which has been brought by Real Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus. And that it's all being wrapped up and the other teams in, in the other nations in Europe see the Premier League as a movable feast and one that they can't compete against. Whereas the Premier League, there's a degree of frustration that they can't do more. Somewhere in the middle, I think you either have to take a, a viewpoint that you stand with it for the long term and build and try and succeed and the value will only go one way. Or you think, actually, we're at a point in time what does the future hold, and, and jump off. And I think that's what FSG have clearly decided to do. To my mind, there's no doubt about it, it's born out of frustration about the Super League and perhaps not being able to take the next step. It's always been intensely political, Don, but it's now getting a bit angry, isn't it? There was a meeting on Tuesday when a company called A22, who are the backers of the Super League, met with representations from... UEFA, the clubs, fan groups, player groups, and it all got a bit spicy. There were accusations of an ambush on one side. On the other, there were accusations of greed. Where is all this going, do you think? And what do you think, in the short term at least, will be the impact on Liverpool itself? You're right about the spiciness. It was UEFA's statement published on, was it... Tuesday night was absolutely remarkable and, and proper hit back at uh, A22, which as far as I was aware was just a road that went to East Grinstead or something like that. <laughs> but there you go. Eastbourne, Eastbourne, that's where it is. No wonder you what? get lost. <laughs> <laughs> football, football really has changed. Um, 
the implication. Well, look, where is it all going? That that Super League issue will will rumble on. I I do get the impression that that yes that that FSG's disappointment essentially that 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 they couldn't be part of of that will have played a a significant part in 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 this decision to put the club up for sale. Not least when they're well, they're competing with with, with a, a a Gulf state in Manchester City and now another one with Newcastle United, and they know where that's going to go domestically over here. So them getting out is yeah that's them basically drawing a line under it and saying that we can't measure up against that we'll see what what's out there in terms of who might take us over but i don't know quite what we expect to happen in the short term at liverpool i don't think that anything can happen at liverpool i mean we're in a situation where there were goldman sachs and morgan stanley are going off and doing their things and trying to find investors there'll be people out there you know putting their presentations to you know potential buyers but that process can be really protracted. I mean, that's not something that's going to get sorted overnight. We got a bit obsessed with the Chelsea thing. I mean, and, and bearing in mind, this is the second elite English club to potentially be changing hands in quite a short period of time, which in itself is quite unusual. But Chelsea, we all sat here and moaned about, oh my God, this is taking forever. That process was done at breakneck pace for a multi-billion pound takeover. That that could easily have taken 12 months, two years to do. And they did it in, what, f- four months? Three, four months? I don't think anything like that will happen with, with Liverpool. So actually, the implications for Jurgen Klopp are probably a bit troubling. If, if he invest- anticipated having some more money to spend in January to you know bolster his depleted midfield, then where's the incentive for, for owners that want out to go and spend £100 million on a player? There's, I suspect that he'll be stuck with what he's got for the near future until there's some clarity in terms of the ownership. And, 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 then, and then, depending on who it's sold to, there may be other issues for him to deal with. I mean, this is a, this is a figure that's been very, very outspoken about, you know, a sovereign wealth fund clubs in the Premier League. What happens if, I don't know, for example, a, a consortium from Bahrain takes over Liverpool? Where, where does that leave him morally, ethically? I mean, it's, it's it's really interesting times and it's going to be uncertain times for for some period yet. Yeah, you, you alluded to it earlier, Crossy, about you know, the inevitability of aggressive US commercial influence being felt on the Premier League. I get the impression that the Chelsea sale price was a bit of a game changer. When you look at that, will their new owners, do you think, give Graham Potter the time and patience that he's already said that he needs to reset that team and the squad? Well, I'll tell you what, Mike, it's a real game changer. I think you're spot on because basically they paid that money, you know, £4 billion plus, without buying the ground. It is a. It was a remarkable sale. Yes, they've kind of all got the fixtures and fittings, but they've got the freehold. I mean, it's 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 when when you put the prime real estate in London, kind of almost take that away. I mean, what on earth would Chelsea be valued at if it actually had the ground as well? It's, it, it it was a bizarre thing, and I I, I was surprised that went through. As Dom rightly says, I mean, it, I think because we had sort of kind of a new story in the soap opera absolutely every day, it did seem to drag on for an internally long time, but actually was done remarkably quickly. And I look, I think I admire what the owners, Chelsea, has sort of uh, have said, that they, they want to give Potter time. It's not make or break, even if he doesn't make the Champions League places this season. That's what they sort of said back in, you know, alluded to back in September. Well, good luck with that, really, because I was at the game on Sunday, for example, and Chelsea fans are getting frustrated. It's now four games in the Premier League without a win. That's four games. Potter was laughing at himself rather self-effacingly, wasn't he, a couple of weeks ago, saying that, you know, basically, as a Chelsea manager, you're only ever 90 minutes away from a crisis. And he's right. I think it's... Potter ball, I think, will come good for Chelsea, but will it come good over, overnight? No. Will it come good while, while you're missing two of your most important players, i.e. the attacking quick wing-backs in, in you know, Rhys James, arguably the most important player in the team, and indeed Ben Chilwell? Definitely not. And so, you know, th- 
these are issues that you've got to overcome and but it's all well and good for the owners to say, oh, give him time and patience. Do you get that as a Chelsea manager from a set of fans who have become used to success, used to be getting used to getting their way on perennial change, if you like, with the manager, and basically are used to getting their way. So if they don't like results, don't like what they're seeing on the pitch, then they can kind of boo to their heart's content and, and basically the, the owners get restless. I, I just don't, you know, we've had a change of ownership, but we haven't had a change of fans who have become used to success. We it might not always find it palatable, but it's worked down the years for Chelsea in this sort of rollover of managers delivering success. And I just don't think that, that Graham Potter can bank on it going for too long, A, without a trophy, and B, without a place in the Champions League. So, in the simple answer to your question, does he get t- the time that he needs? I don't think he does. I think he's got to work to a much quicker timetable. We, we should just clarify on that point that Crossy makes about the stadium. I mean, you're talking about the Chelsea pitch owners there, aren't you? In, in terms of the, the freehold of the ground yeah. and the, the pitch itself and the naming rights of Chelsea Football Club. It's not as if they've got an aggressive... Um, no, no, you're right, John. But I company. just think in terms of j- just sheer value, fundamentally, they don't actually own the ground completely, do they? I mean, that mm. that's the issue. I mean, you're right. They release big, exciting plans... Pitch owners will clearly not stand in, in their way. But sh- as a pure asset, and I have to say, I, I think owners do think, think in pure asset terms. That's why I think the price was just so exceptional, you know, for, for, mm. for Chelsea. Because I don't, I don't think they think of, of it in any other terms. I, I get the sense, chaps, that Chelsea is a club in transition, from you know, as writers and journalists and as fans, it's the concentration is on today or tomorrow. I get the sense from you know the things that I hear from coming out of the club that this is a fundamental reassessment of where it's going to be. Uh, I would not be surprised when you when you read into what's going on in terms of their their restocking of the recruitment department. In you know they have a a whole raft of people involved in that now who have got very, very good reputations. I think we're looking at, you know, the city multi-club global model coming out of Chelsea. Would that surprise you, Dom? Because it's a club that you know well. Not, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, Todd Bowley's made that obvious. That's that's his, his admiration for, you know, for the RB sort of model. That's out there on record. And... Look, it's again going back to the original point. It's all happening very, very quickly. The, the revamp of the recruitment department that you say at the moment appears to be sign anybody who's any good, even if they do the same role as someone else that you've already hired. I mean, it's how they juggle that ultimately is will be intriguing as well. I mean, we they have to work together, but you're basically flinging people who are coming with big reputations, presumably big egos, and and their own particular way of doing things, and you're putting them together and hoping that it all hits the ground running. It's, But that's, that is Chelsea at the moment, you're right. It, very much a club in transition, and very much a club that's probably going to have to readjust its its immediate targets and expectations, and that, that goes to the, the fan base as well. I mean, it was the mood on, on Sunday outside Stamford Bridge was pretty miserable. Okay, you've just lost a game against Arsenal, but I think that match illustrated two clubs, two teams, anyway, two teams going in very different directions at the moment. Arsenal, young, vibrant, and really reaping the rewards of some long-term planning. And and Chelsea suddenly realising that at the end of an era, stuck with some players that they'd probably like to get rid of, uh, trying to bring others in, trying to balance short-term expectations and, and targets with with needing that long-term vision and, and with owners who don't know anything about football. So it's it's going to be, a, I imagine it'll be quite a painful process and, and Graham Potter's taken a, a big gamble going there in many ways. But as he said, as he said in his press conference on, on Tuesday, if he'd wanted the easy life, he'd have stayed at Brighton. Do you know what? I, I just feel that they've absolutely got the right man if they want to do that long-term plan. I really passionately do. I think he's a really exciting, passionate coach. He's a bit different. I'm desperate for him to do well for the sake of future English managers, if you like. And I think he can build a philosophy in a team. Of course he can. And all around that, all around the structure, you know, behind the scenes, the hierarchy, you know, the football team, if you like, in terms of recruitment, in terms of vision, 
I think is all really going to be set up for, for him to succeed. The stadium even, we touched on that before. They've got long-term plans about kind of rebuilding the stadium and moving forward with that, which surely they have, and I'm sure they will. It was part of the sale, wasn't it? That's going to be a long-term vision. And I think that Potter is exactly the man to oversee that. My, my issue is more getting absolutely everybody on side, particularly the fans, to buy into it and say, this is it. It's going to take, say, three, five years. We're not saying we won't be successful. We can't win anything in that time. But there might be some short-term pain. But we're going to get it right in the long term. And I just really think that, actually, massive credit to to the ownership there and basically the way that they've gone with Potter. He's not the big European name of before. But I just think, actually, this can work. But it has to get time, I think. Mm. There are some parallels with, with Arsenal, aren't there, Dom, in terms of... They came under quite some severe scrutiny, but they stayed true to the you know broader vision of Edu and Mikel Arteta. That leaves them you know, going into Saturday or the weekend at the top of the Premier League. Do you think they are realistic title contenders? Well, they're two points clear of the best team in the world. I mean, that's, that's the reality of it. And that's what Michael Arteta has said as well. They're up against the best manager in the world, the best team in the world, a team with unlimited resources, effectively. A team that has won the Premier League four times out of five. They, they've given themselves the best chance they could possibly have. I mean, it's an incredible start. Any other season, some a team that gets 34 points from a possible 39 would go and walk the league. I think it's only been, I think it was only Newcastle in 95, 96 that haven't done that after this type of start to a season. But the reality of the Premier League and the reality of who you're up against in the Premier League means that that unbelievable run of fixtures gets you a two-point lead at the top of the division against the best team in the world. Now, personally, I think Manchester City will still win the league because of all the things I've just listed there and the fact they've got you know a, a, a striker that at the moment is unstoppable and they've got a manager who can't be outwitted. And if they need to do something in January, they'll just go and do it. Although they probably won't. They don't probably don't need to because they've got... I mean, we still haven't seen Calvin Phillips play for them yet, for God's sake. I mean, it's <laughs> utterly insane. However, all that said, everything that Arsenal are doing is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And and I remember the reaction. And I think possibly on this podcast, I think we may have done a podcast in, in the summer of 2021. The reaction, oh my word, what have they bought in this window? How much money have they spent on these players? None of them are good enough. They're not going to win anything. Well, those players are now mainstays of that team. You've seen Ben White excel out of position at right back, arguably. Aaron Ramsdale, you know, going to be in the England squad, I'd imagine, unless there's something disastrous happens. I mean, he's he's been outstanding as well. You, throughout that team, quality, there's youthful exuberance, there's proper pedigree in there as well and there's the right balance and momentum and belief and conviction and faith in the management and and the and the project and the plan which is all you can do in this environment you can have all that and hope that it works against the best team in the world they've done fantastically well they may not win it but they're definitely going in the right direction well let's i've got a little bit of selective memory about those conversations don but hey i wasn't part of it i got no, no, I, I distinctly remember that's what we did and i i, yeah. I felt that time thinking we, this could come back to bite us <laughs> do you know what i do think it's worth pointing out isn't it i think it was 160 million pounds that window which was a remarkable window it was strengthening and even the summer just gone they, they they you know they spent a lot of money and basically bought well again it was definitely quality rather than quantity in the, in the summer just gone as compared to the previous window and bought really well the recruitment's been been great and they've really progressed each time well listen we've just been speaking about liverpool who are now stuck in a little bit of limbo because the club is effectively up for sale so you know, where does that leave it? Chelsea are, are, are a team in, in transition. So where do they go from here in terms of recruitment and buys? There, there's a feeling at Arsenal that it was always going to be thus, that it was going to take time because the Cronkies were never going to, you know, release the purse strings and go absolutely crazy and, and be really sort of kind of, they were supportive at all times, of course, but really go for it in the window and and release capabilities for Arsenal to spend big while they weren't in full control of the club. The moment they took 
control of the club was a game changer for, 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 for Arsenal because all of a sudden they were saying, well, go and spend it. Now we're investing in our club. Before, they part-owned the club. Mm. You know, they, they, they're the majority share. And this is the problem that you've got, I think, for Liverpool, is that similarly, you, you're going to be in a bit of limbo, I think, if you're Jurgen Klopp. I would worry about that because, you know, £150 million on a midfielder in the summer, well, that would be about, a, you know, a 5% share of what the club's value is. Well, no owner is going to do that while trying to sell the club because they could lose 150 million in a transaction. And so mm. it's 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 a concern, it's a big concern I think. And similarly, I think Chelsea just have to kind of get it right as Don rightly says Arsenal has become quickly the model of rebuild. Mm. Lest we forget, you know, the figures released this week confirm that City's is the first squad to Cost more than a billion pounds. I think it was one point one six billion, which does suggest that money will eventually conquer all, instead of love. Guardiola, Dom, is it telling? Do you think that perhaps the only area of uncertainty at City is his future? Well, yes, yeah. I mean, and we and we've seen that he's he's he he reaches a he hits a wall. You know, eventually at clubs because he is that intense, and he's not afraid to walk away from the biggest clubs out there. But I, I still think that he feels that he has more that he can achieve, and there's, there are new challenges being flung down in the Premier League. I mean, Arsenal is a new challenge, not least it's being you know masterminded by his one of his former assistants. Newcastle United represents a new challenge in the Premier League, and moreover. The Champions League is a challenge that he'll want to he'll want to address. That's his Everest, isn't it? I mean, that at the moment with City, that if, if he can scale that, then maybe his attitude changes to whether he he prolongs his stay beyond the end of this season. But I, I do think he will stick about. I, I I think he'll want to win that European Cup, and he'll want to he'll, he'll want to to ensure that. Uh, he's obviously not going to. He's not not going to emulate a Sir Alex Ferguson in terms of the number of Premier Leagues he wins, but cause he's not going to be there for that length of time. But but he'll want City to be utterly, utterly, utterly dominant. At the moment, they're dominant, four out of five. But you know, make that seven out of eight or something like that. Then, well, then you then you're talking about a dynasty that's been that that, that has been established and that he's overseen. In in that sense, John, then you know, we we look at Newcastle. And, you know, let's be honest, the money is is there and will probably finance, you know, a second wave of, of, you know, fairly spectacular recruitment, one would imagine. But should we pause a little and give some praise to Eddie Howe when you consider that he's improved players under his watch? Okay, there's been, you know, the odd signing, which has, you know, been fundamental. You know, I'm thinking of Almiron as a, as a Joe Linton, people like that. He's doing a heck of a job in a year, isn't he? Incredible. And I think it's so important, Mike, as, as well, to seize on that point, really. That, of course, people will talk about the, the ownership and the money at stake. But actually, they're, they're going in a different way to that. And they're growing it almost organically. And they've got the perfect manager, I think, to do that. What Eddie Howe has done at Newcastle this season has been nothing short of remarkable. Times last season, start was disastrous and basically completely up in the air. They flirted with the relegation scrap. It was the same the season before. And here, all of a sudden, they're in third place, having finished last season, obviously, remarkably well, because you could see the upturn in Eddie Howe. But then he's gone on to another level this season, it's not been silly money. It's been really kind of good, prudent spending on players like Bruno, who's given them a fantastic new energy. You know, Dan Byrne, what an exciting, what a really inspirational one that was. Nick Pope, another good acquisition. So he's improving the players in all areas. And I just think he's then you know, taken that squad and you can see the togetherness. That's what I like. It's so easy, isn't it, sometimes to go and splash the cash, buy superstars. They're sure they've got loads of money in the bank. They've probably got lots of FFP room to play with and they could go and do loads more. But the reality is that he's building a squad and a unity there. 
and you can see that on the pitch. You can see that as they celebrate, as they did on Sunday, you know, on the pitch at St Mary's. It was brilliant to see. And he's improving players. Honestly, what Eddie Howe is doing, I mean, the, the, the top three is so representative in different ways. Arteta, you know, doing a fantastic job. Guardiola, the absolute legend of managers. And Eddie Howe representing the, you know, up-and-coming face of Newcastle. Brilliant. In, in their own right, three sensational pieces of management there. Yeah, that last uh, performance did for Ralph Hassenhutl. You know, Southampton, a club, you know, almost how the other half live, isn't it? You know, they're, they're looking, Dom, at you know, more strategic recruitment, you know, younger players. They're, they're now talking to Nathan Jones, the Luton manager. On Hassenhutl, I'm assuming, like most people, you weren't that surprised by it. No, no, I, I actually weirdly had him down as, I think he and Scott Parker were the two that I thought would probably go first this season in, in the league and not Parker for politics, Hassan Hoodle, because they had such a dreadful run at the end of last season and often that, that sort of hangover creeps into the new campaign. It just felt as if it had run its course there, but I, I, and particularly when all his coaching staff were basically dismissed over the summer and he got the new coaching staff imposed upon him and that well brought in anyway that that uh it's pretty big warning sign to be fair but i, I it's interesting hasn't hoodle because he's he's had some amazing moments but he's also had the he's he's, he's been a, a manager of extremes southampton are either amazing and, and energetic and dynamic and they swarm all over opponents and rip them to pieces regardless of the opponents, or they're utterly, utterly abject with no defensive organisation whatsoever and get beat 9-0 at least twice a season. I mean, it's which clearly never happens, and I exaggerate, but the, that, that, was, that was the extremes. And as soon as, as soon as one of those extremes sort of set in, and unfortunately for Haston Hoodle, it was the latter, with a, a squad that had been overhauled and, and a lot of very promising young players brought in, but with, with no real experience of the sort of brutality of the Premier League they were coming into. Yeah, it was it was only a really a matter of time. It's it's an interesting one, Nathan Jones. I mean he has been gone too long obviously, but but it's uh <laughs> oh, you beat me to it. I can't believe it. <laughs> I could just sense that you were gonna say that. I could see you on the Zoom. <laughs> but I mean it's it's given that I his, can sense half he... of our listeners looking looking yeah, at the going, mirror and thinking what are they talking about? I'm just so <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Um but yeah, you know, he's done a wonderful job in twice at Luton Town. But it's been his club, homespun, his club, that's what he's done there. When he went to Stoke it was pretty disastrous. So th- there is an element of, of risk here. I mean, he's he's a very, very bright young manager with his own way of doing things and and, and would have that sort of, sort of be able to tap into the same sort of, get that feverish dynamic performances out of his team that, that Hasenhutl did when he had his best. But it's just whether State scarred him or not. Mm. Well, different times, of course. But Owen Hargreaves won the Champions League and the Premier League in his first season with Manchester United. He's established himself as one of the most informed and insightful commentators on the game. We met to discuss the lessons of his career and the prospects for the Qatar World Cup. So, Owen... Thanks for joining us. Much appreciated, as usual. It always seemed to me that you were a bit of an outlier as a player, certainly. Because if you think about it, multi-sport upbringing in Canada, German influence through Bayern, you have multinational op- options to play. Yet, it's quite a simplistic question, I suppose, but did you ever feel you truly belonged such a conservative introspective world as English football you know I you know I never really saw it like that you know I grew up I grew up in Canada I was born and raised there I've got two older brothers both of them one's born in England one's born in Wales my mum's Welsh my dad's English they moved to Canada for work so we we grew up in a football family because my dad played he loved it and I was the youngest of the three boys so I just did 
kind of what they did, what my dad did, my older brother did, and I was on the side. They were playing football and I was kicking the ball on the side. So I think at the heart of it, I'd say I, I was born Canadian. I felt Canadian, even though up to that point, I was the only Canadian in the history of my family, from my mom's side, from my dad's side, even from my brother's. So I think I, I was born and raised in Canada up till 16, and I had that influence on me, you know, the way the Canadian people are, the culture, everyone's quite laid back, everyone's quite helpful and, and nice to each other. But then on the flip side of that, I moved to Munich when I was 16, you know, and I had no real experiences with Germany. I had no understanding of the culture or the language or what I was getting myself into, but I wanted to play professional football and I couldn't do that in Canada. And then I had obviously the experiences of, you know, being born in Canada and then, but raised in a British home in, in Canada. So we, you know, we had Sunday roasts and had all the British traditions, you know, 10 cups of tea a day for my <laughs> mom and dad. My granddad lived with us, you know, he, he was about as English as you could get. You know, he used to sit and watch the tennis, watch Wimbledon. You know, he, he loved it. He used to go to the Legion. So, yeah, I grew up in Canada, but in, in, a, in a proper English home. My mom used to make shepherd's pie once a week. And then the, the, the kind of stuff that came with, with that was football because my dad played more, the brother played. But then, obviously, moving to Munich at 16 changed my life. You know, I had a huge impact on me as, as a young man. And then, obviously, with my journey and the path that it took, then playing for England and moving to England, so I've kind of had three chapters, the Canadian one, the Munich one, and, and the English one. So 16 years in Canada, 10 in Munich, and then I think I've been, you know, 15 years here in England now. So I feel blessed really. I, I wouldn't say I felt like an outsider, but I always was in a way, just because of my journey. But I felt like I was always learning something, and I felt not the more often that I left my comfort zone, but actually it forced me to adapt. And I had all this, you have so much to learn, Football, I never thought I'd be a professional football player in my life. But when I got offered the opportunity to go and try the Bayern, uh, I thought, yeah, you know, I've I, I got to try this. And, and Did you go into that fresh, as it were? Because, you know, in Canada, I'm assuming you had quite a typical upbringing, a North American upbringing, you know, Ice hockey is obviously big there. Yeah, because of the weather, it's minus 30. You've got to play ice hockey. If <laughs> yeah. you come home from school, it's minus 20, minus 30. You throw your backpack and you go to the ice rink. So basically... You didn't have the experience of many young aspiring pros that I see in England who are hothoused to a large degree in that academy system. Did that actually help that almost you went into Bayern fresh? I wouldn't say I wouldn't say so fresh. I felt I felt blessed to play multiple sports. You know, I was I used to play basketball more than football before I moved to Bayern Munich. I wore twenty three at Bayern Munich because of Michael Jordan. You know, I couldn't watch football, the Premier League of the time difference really you know it was six seven in the morning on my dad used to get up and watch it i didn't do that so my first experience of really football were just kind of my dad's and my brother's and and then playing it myself but you know i loved playing basketball it had a huge impact on me i love watching the nfl i love watching you know base everything you, you grow up in canada you just watch everything just because everything's so seasonal and i actually think playing basketball helped me a lot because i wasn't as naturally gifted at it because i wasn't very tall and i wasn't a great shooter but i was a point guard for my team and I love the fact that, you know, I had to share the bones, get at people in the right places. It was super explosive. You're always jumping. And I think that's what made me, you know, helped make me as explosive as I was when I played football. But also I think it helped. Football was natural to me because of my dad and my brother. A lot of it was genetic. And then being the youngest of three boys, I didn't realize this at the time, but it made me very competitive because I had to compete against all the, all the brothers, my older brothers, which benefited me when I came into the football environment as I got older because I, I had a quite thick skin, I think. And not being very good at basketball, actually, I had to compete at it more. So when I learned to compete at basketball the way I did, which was quite a competitive level, it actually helped translate over into football because football was a little bit more natural for me just because I think because of my upbringing, my, my dad and my brothers. So I felt blessed, really, that I had all those different sports, you know, because I think, I think sometimes in this country, I see it's either England or uh, in, in England, it's either football, rugby or cricket. And they're all so different. And I actually think you can learn a lot from playing other sports you know I just think you see a lot of kids now that okay that they like they love football but it's if you if you're doing you know six seven days a week you know it, it gets monotonous even though they love it I just think having different stimulus a different I think is 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 good for anyone mm. you thrived at Bayern what qualities does German football develop and also demand well, I mean, it was a pretty demanding environment just because it was Bayern Munich. I didn't know I was going to Bayern Munich, really. It was just, that's why I went on trial, and that was the first team I went on trial, and they, and they kept me. So going into that environment, 
you know, Bayern had, I, I moved into the, I lived on the training ground when I first got there. I was 16 and there was about, I think there was about 12 kids, 10 or 12 kids that lived in this apartment block, basically on the training ground. I used to overlook the first team training ground. Um, and there was a lady at the bottom downstairs who her, her ex-husband who had passed away. He was one of the coaches. So she ended up looking after these guys that came from too far away in Germany to, to go home. So they kind of lived in there. And then we had a few foreign ones, myself, a young guy from the Czech Republic and another guy from Sweden and Iceland. So we kind of, you know, we kind of just lived in this, it, it lived in this complex on the training ground and we were kind of all immersed in, in football, you know, in Canada, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't really get that, but I just, I just thought it was so unique, you know, to, to go in and I'd watch the first team train, you know, I'd hear the tackles, I hear, I'd hear the, the conversations and Bayern especially is just hyper competitive, you know, just because if you think like you'd walk in the training ground and Franz Beckenbauer would be there, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge would be there, Uli Hoeneß would be there, Ged Muller was one of my youth coaches. So the history that those guys have, and you don't know it as a young time, as a young kid at 16, especially from Canada, but then you, you get a feel for everything that these guys have and then the demands that the club sets and the history, and you can help. It's, it's just such a competitive environment. Germany is anyway, but I think Bayern was even more extreme in that. And you have to learn to, to deal with that and to manage that, you know? So it was a, it was a great school for me. It is a great learning environment, you know, for the current generation, when you think about it, Jude Bellingham, Dortmund captain at 19, obviously a generational talent. You've got Jaden Sancho, who goes to Manchester United, hasn't fulfilled himself. Again, I suppose the, the question, it's a bit of a repeat of the earlier question. What does German football, what has German football done for this new generation of English players who are going over there almost to, it seems, to complete their apprenticeship. Well, you know what? I just think the most one of the most important things in football, especially for anyone, is is an opportunity. And I think young players don't always get that over here. Look at Jaden really at Man City. There were a lot of things happened there, so he went to Dortmund. Jude had lots of opportunities here, but saw his sort of saw better off developing at Dortmund. And you could argue that he's that he's done the right thing. I think as a young player, you know. All you want is an opportunity to showcase your talent. And uh, I think Germany has, has been a good platform for that. I think there's a lot of ignorance also from, I think back when I was in, in the England team in 2006 and we were in Baden-Baden, we were based there and we were training there every day. And it's, it's, it's such a stunning part of the world, Baden-Baden really is. You know, we drive down this from the hotel down to the training ground every day. And we were there for like a month. You know, all our families were there, which became quite a story in itself anyway. <laughs> Just the diversion, yeah. yeah. Um, but all the guys remember, and I was still at Bayern at the time, so I was the only player that didn't play in the Premier League in that England squad. And then, you know, it was 30 degrees every day, 25 degrees, it was beautiful. You know, the towns were beautiful. All the families were looked after, had a great time. It was safe. And I remember Gary Neville turned to me and said, geez, you know, can't get over how, how beautiful everything is here. He said, no wonder you play here. And I said, yeah, but guys, that's, you know, he is like this, you know, I'm at I'm Bayern Munich. And Bayern Munich, Munich's 10 times better than this here, by the way. Our stadium probably better than yours. Our training grounds probably better than yours. <laughs> you know, we can beat you in the Champions League. And, you, you know, those Chelsea, Man United, Liverpool, Arsenal teams. So I think there was, you know, look, I understand people, if you're a Serie A or La Liga or England Premier League, you can only really watch one game a day or a weekend, can't you? You know, or you watch your team. So the English fans, obviously, were very focused on the Premier League. But I tell you what, there's a lot of beautiful football teams out there in the world. You know, whereas the Bayern Munich or Borussia Dortmund, in Germany, the same thing that, that we love here about our league, you know, there's some amazing teams there with great stadiums and infrastructure. The, the German mentality, you know, improves that. And I just think for the young kids there, there's so much opportunity because they're, they're giving these young kids a platform to go and play, which they're not really getting here. And that's why they went in the first place. Mm. With that England group, I think by common consent, it probably underachieved as a group. Why do you think that was? Uh, there's, there's so many variables to that. We had such an amazing group of players, it was scary. I mean, we, we literally had world class in every position, sometimes more than one. And training, I remember training was just was out of this world. The level was so high. It was, I was talking about this with Peter Crouch and, and Jermaine Genes the other day. They said he should go back to the club and couldn't believe the difference in just the level. And the training level was so high, it was, it, honestly, it was, it, I used to think we're gonna win every game here. We, you know, we're gonna win comfortably. And then we get into a game and for whatever reason, 
when the other team got the ball sometimes we couldn't really get it back we had just so many gifted players you know we had David Beckham Stephen Jarrett Frank Lampard Paul Scholes Michael Owen Wayne Rooney and back then you played 4-4-2 pretty much exclusively so we were always trying to fit everybody in and maybe the balance of the team wasn't you know if with the modern managers now or the way football is played now we probably would have found something but yeah you could argue we you know we underachieved I think back to my major tournaments we lost to Brazil in the quarterfinal they were better than us you know, Ronaldo, Rivaldo and Ronaldinho and all them. Uh, then we lost two in 2004 and 2006 on penalties to Portugal, you know, and they can go either way. So I think we're always quite close, but just in those big moments, we just kind of, you know, we, we just kind of missed it. But I think Sven did a pretty good job of of getting everybody together. But in the end, you know, we we just we just missed something, you know, as a, I think as a, as a whole team. I think the talent and the pieces of the puzzle were there. We just didn't put it together. And that's how, I mean, essentially, that's how football is. You know, it's not always about having the best players. It's about who's the best team. And uh, I think we all look back on that with, I wouldn't say regret because it, you know, it, it goes the way it goes, but we all had so much success at club level. We, I think we all thought, especially English fans, you know, these guys are going to win something. I think we felt the same in training. But when sometimes we got into that in the games, it didn't really materialize. As you say, there are so many variables, fate being one. Your first year at Manchester United, Premier League, Champions League double. Yet, in a way, it signalled not the beginning of the end, but it certainly it was when really the injury issues began to assail you. Can you give people listening to this who probably can't comprehend how fundamental fitness is, health is, to a footballer. What you go through during those endless months, either in rehab, in the gym, or just getting, begging almost for that chance to prove yourself again. Well, I mean, for us, especially me, physically, my, I think my physical attributes were one of the reasons I was successful. So pretty much on any team I ever played on, I was always the quickest. No matter who it was with, I was always, when we ever did sprint testing, I, I won every distance, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 meters. The people didn't know that because of the position I played. It looked like I was a holding midfield player, but I was, I was so explosive. So I could surprise people and win the ball back. And endurance-wise, I, you know, I, I could run forever. So a lot of those physical traits are what allowed me to play at the level that I did because I think they were, they were given to me, but then I was also you know, very competitive. I think growing up in the environment I did with my older brothers and then going into Bayern at a young age and learning to compete and learning. And my, my dad used to say, you know, treat it like your last game. Give it everything, leave everything out there. Don't worry about kind of the end product. So that's how I used to approach every game. In a way, that was a good thing and it was a bad thing because it catapulted me to a place which I could have never dreamed of as a, as a, as a young kid, you know, playing, playing football in Canada. You know, I'm a... I used to deliver newspapers in minus 20 before school when I was 13, 12, 13. And then my second job was as a chef at McDonald's when I was 14 because they're the only people that hire you. And then all of a sudden to go play in a Champions League final and a World Cup, you just think, you know, what, what a beautiful opportunity. So when I played, I left. I tried to leave everything out there. But sometimes physically, then I realized physically my, my mind was much stronger than my body sometimes. And when you had pain, every player has pain. You know, the guys that the fans watch on the weekend, not many people are healthy. You know, you're all carrying something, whether it's knee, hip, knee. The only thing you can't really carry is muscular because obviously you can't play with that. You know, with the game as explosive it is, but we all have issues. And I just, I probably tried to push through mine when I should have just took a step back. So it's quite weird to have this, have your body take you so far, you know, from Canada to Germany to England to from Bayern to United. And then all of a sudden it'd be taken away from you. It's, it's, it's so humbling to the point that, you know, I, sometimes I couldn't go up the stairs in mass because I couldn't get back down. So I'd sleep on the couch, you know, and people don't see that, you know, they, they don't see the, there's a lot of suffering, I think, for the top players because you, you know, and the, one, the only thing I would say is I was so blessed up till 26, I probably was, you know, to have a career almost as, as good as anyone's probably in Europe with the success that I had. But um, I don't think, the one thing, I, I didn't think I enjoyed it enough, you know, because every game was must win. So when you play, you're competing for a title and you got Champions League on a Wednesday and then you got league game on a, especially at a club like Bayern. And then you got international tournaments, you know, you got World Cups and Euros. And you can never take, a, take your foot off the gas. So I never really enjoyed it. Like I did enjoy it, but I didn't, you know, you could never take 
take a step back and enjoy it. So, yeah, it was it it was amazing. But to have those to have my body take me so far, but then when it was taken away from me and I couldn't anymore, it was just so it was so hard to to comprehend even for myself. Mm. And you're forty one, that right? Yeah. So that's the same age as Michael Carrick. Yeah. He's just begun his first full-time managerial job at Middlesbrough. You know, you're very successful on this side of the fence now. Is there anything within you, because you know, listening to you speak, there is an, an empathy that you radiate for the experience of a professional footballer. Did you ever think about coaching? Yeah, I mean, I had somebody at one of the clubs I, I played for, remember, because when I, I negotiated one of my own, I, I didn't have an agent, I did my contract myself. Then I remember we were talking about the team and, and I said, did you know, you know, when we play teams like us, we're, we're going to struggle? And he said, he looked at me like I was an alien because he had put it together. And I said, look, I'm not being critical or anything. It's just, you know, I've been in these teams my whole life. And, you know, a bit like England, we had a few too many really good players and we didn't really have the balance right sometimes. And anyway, season was coming to an end. This is about eight, ten months later at training ground, and I saw him, and he said, oh, can I talk to you for a second? I said, yeah, of course. He said, you know what it said to me at the start of the season? He said, you were right. And I said, no, I didn't say it to be right. I just said it because I was just, you know, trying to help. And he said, look, I wish the coaches that I employed would talk to me like that because, you know, I think you should be a coach, you know. But I had signed a contract to do telly, you know, with BT and and stuff and I had committed there in X amount of days so I was going and doing some coaching which I love you know I think TV is is, is, is cool you know you, you get to watch lots of different games and different styles and see what works what does and you, you get to it's probably the closest thing to being a player still because you're still around a lot of the guys but I wouldn't I, I can't imagine this as rewarding as maybe mentoring a young kid to work on something in a weekend and implement in a game and to see his face and to see that come off so I, I always thought I probably would one day Getting into coaching, I'm sure I'd love to do that. But you just see a lot of the guys, you know, they, you pick the wrong job and it's over for you, even blink. So who knows, maybe one day I will. I, I'm sure I'd, I'd love to. But right now, you know, with I got two young kids, youngish, gives me great flexibility to, to, to you know, say, do a certain amount of games a season. Well, it feels like a lot at the moment. Mm -hmm. And then any, the other time I get to be with them. But I, I, I've always thought with the right dynamic, it's something I'd love to do. We've got the World Cup thundering towards us now. You could have played international football for four countries. England you chose, Canada, Wales, and Germany you were saying earlier. Why did you choose England? And can we also just go through, because obviously all four of those nations have qualified for Qatar. Can we just look at them on an individual basis? Let's start, for instance, with Canada. They've got an English coach, John Herdman, who's now coaching the men's team after coaching the women's team, which you know, I think I'm right in saying is pretty unique. What should we expect from the Canadian team? You know, they're such an exciting young team, you know, well coached. I'm excited for them. I really am. I grew up, I'm born and bred Canadian at the heart of it. Obviously, my mom and dad are Welsh and, you know, I had a living in England for so long and playing for England's had a huge part of me. So, um, you know, people always try and pigeonhole you say, what are you, you know? And, you know, I'm, I'm Canadian born, but from a British family. So I have my foot in kind of different camps, really. Canada at the time for me, the opportunity wasn't there. They weren't, you know, really, they invited me to a tournament once and I couldn't, I was at Bayern at the time in the academy. And they said, well, if you don't come, you're never gonna play for Canada again. And I was like 16, you know, I, was, I thought it was weird to threaten a young kid. And then in my first year, you know, at Bayern, I went into the first team, we won the league and won the Champions League, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, everyone's like, who's, who's this kid, you know? And I think a lot of people knew I was English just because of my Hargreaves on the back of the shirt. And all of a sudden, all these opportunities came. Wales were asking me to play for them, and England were asking me to play, but I always thought at the heart of it, I would play for Canada, with a, you know, 100%. But it just, for whatever reason, the way it was at the time, it, it wasn't as well-run as it is now. They had a lot of issues. I was a young kid trying to make my way at Bayern. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're doing an amazing job. They should be really proud of what they've been able to build and to achieve. You've got, you know, one of the young superstars in the world, Alfonso Davis, who's just, you've got to love watching him. Jonathan David up front, he's a, you know, he's a fantastic player. He's a, he's a handful. So I think the last World Cup they played in, you know, I think that's over, over 20 years ago. I don't even think they scored, you know. Mm. So just being there, I think, is a huge achievement. Credit to everyone. And football's a huge sport in Canada. So I'm, I'm really excited for them. 
see what they can go achieve and what they can build. Yeah. You played, I think it was three times for the 19s for Wales. Yeah. Obviously, it's a hugely emotional achievement, them getting to the World Cup first time for so long. Gareth Bale is the totemic figure of that team. Hasn't played that much since going to the States. When you have this opportunity, and you know, logic says it's his last big opportunity, does just instinct and experience take over now? Well, I wish it was that easy. You know, I think obviously you need a certain bit of a rhythm. You know, I think we've seen a lot of times managers try and pick players based on name rather than just kind of, you know, kind of form and, and fitness. So you can't just switch it on and off. It's hard. You know, the game's too good. The players are too good. Gareth's talent is just it's out of this world. You know, he's like he's, he was born to play football with all his athletic gifts. And I hope for him, you know, I just think my my mom and you know, her family, they're, they're really keen to watch Wales and see them do well. And Gareth is just, you know, town-wise, he's just one of those guys. He's just he's a super, super special player. So they probably can only go as far as really Gareth can carry them. That's how it is, I think, for some of the smaller nations that have a guy in that category, and Gareth surely is. So I hope his fitness is right because we know if he's fit and he's healthy, you know, he can tear pretty much anyone apart. But um, I've got some fantastic technical players as well, Wales, you know. So I'm excited for them. But again, I think Gareth, he's, he carries a lot of weight on those, on those broad shoulders. He certainly does. England and Germany, you know, the old rivals. You know, one of my most profound memories was, was that 5-1 in Germany, which you, know, you played in. That was my first England cap. Yeah. yeah. Which is some way to announce yourself, isn't it, really? They are superpowers of a sort. How do you expect them to do? I think they're very similar. You know, I, I, I don't think they're favourites, either of them. But I think they're just in that tier below. I think they've got so many good players. You know, they've got good coaches. But there's probably some teams that I think they're maybe slightly favoured more, maybe Brazil, Argentina and France. But then you look after that and you think, you know, you think about Portugal and Germany and England and Spain. You know, there's so many really, really good teams. And if they get it right and they get the form right and the boys are firing, then they can. They can definitely go do it. I think for Germany, they're kind of in a little bit of a new phase with, with Hansi Flick, but still... So many fantastic players. Kimmich is just, you know, he's a fabulous player to watch. Neuer and Testegen, they're two goalies. I mean, it's almost a, it's almost unfair. They've got one of the best young players in the world. I love to watch Jamal Musiala. Mm. I think he's going to absolutely tear it up. He's he's fabulous to watch. We think about Sane and Nabri and Thomas Muller and all these guys. They're they're super blessed. So and I think I see England very similar. A lot of players to choose from, a lot of really good players. The manager's got to get the blend right, get the blend right. And if they do, then there's every chance that they can. I wouldn't say they're, f they're not favourites, but if they, if they get it right, they can go on and win it, both of them. Mm. So as a final question, a very short one, really. Who's going to win it? It's, I think it's so tough. Um, I think one of the South American teams, you know, Brazil or Argentina. I think for Messi, it might be his last, probably his last one. That guy, everything he touches just seems to turn to gold. Um, and now all of a sudden, they, it feels like they've got a solid team around him. You know, some good keeper, good centre-backs. Attack-wise, we know they're amazing. Yeah, I just feel like it's Argentina or Brazil. But again, there's so many great teams. But I'm going to go with one of the South American ones. OK. Well, thanks very much for your time, Owen. Much appreciated. Thank you. You were both at the 2006 World Cup. John, what was your view on Owen's insight into you know, the underachievement of that England team? Obviously, it's from the inside. You know, what did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it played into the narrative, I think, there, that, that really it was the togetherness, wasn't it? And it was the, they, had, they certainly had the talent and they were labelled the golden generation. Although I have to say, there's quite been quite a lot of revisionism of, of, of that lately because, you know, if you speak to right. other members of that of that particular generation, they will say, well, golden generation, hang on a minute. You know, there were teams with far, far better teams than us. We really weren't, you know, top of the world, kind of probably where, where we were, sort of kind of five or six, you know, sort of thing. But it was a very rich vein of talent and, and Owen Hargreaves was absolutely spot on you know him talking about the sort of 2006 and that sort of you know it, his his performance in that Portugal game was probably the high point 
even in defeat, of his England career, because he was absolutely sensational that day. He was just England's best player and amazing. But did they fulfil the potential, really? No, because of that whole, you know, Barden, Barden, the soap opera, the cliques within the dressing room. I thought it was a really illuminating chat on the kind of, you could just sense that basically he didn't feel that the team unity and team togetherness was it was in any way near geared up I don't think for actual success really in mm. terms of trophies yeah I was really struck one by Owen's intuitive understanding of the game itself but also you know his emotional sensitivity I thought it was also really interesting you know that he made reference to the fact that there was going to be a huge focus on Jude Bellingham in Qatar you know, he sees Germany, which is obviously a country he knows really well, as as the def, almost like the development centre for new emerging English players. What do you think of that, Don? Well, it's become that to a certain extent in over recent years. I mean, he talks about opportunity, doesn't he? And and, and German clubs being willing to give chances to to young talent and 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 blood them basically. I think. I don't think we should. I don't think we should exaggerate. I mean, you know, young talent does get an opportunity in this country as well. I mean, Phil Foden at Manchester City is a, a decent example of that. Okay, Jaden Sancho left, but Phil Foden stayed, and he. You'd imagine if England are going to do well in in Qatar, then then he would play a major role in that. But when you see, yeah, Bellingham, who's the progress he made has made at Dortmund, and the progress that Sancho did, albeit his his career is in a interesting place at the moment at Manchester United mm. and when you see people like Hudson Odoi you know willing to go over to Germany on loan and in the knowledge that they will get games even in a struggling team at Bayer Leverkusen get game time get up rhythm experience and conscious that the infrastructure is there to help them we know he talks about Weirdly, he, he he when he when he talks about them the two thousand and six World Cup, it was almost like the other players in that team were surprised that everything was so spick and span in Germany. I mean, I don't know about you, Crossy, but I, I've always I've always thought Germ- Germany's for, for football is, is is spectacular. I mean, it's got mm. it's always had that infrastructure. It's always had the certainly since maybe maybe it was around that time. Maybe maybe there was a revamp ahead of that World Cup, but the but the the stadia were there the you go to training centers over there and they they were always a level a cut above english ones and it's almost like we followed them we we were inspired by what the bundesliga clubs were doing and thought well, yeah we can do this and maybe even eclipse it with the money that we've got coming in but that seemed to take the other england players we even played the other england players were a bit surprised by this and what germany was like as a place which is quite interesting Mm. Well, it, it did strike me as, as he was he was a very worldly player, wasn't he? And I think that's a, a result of his different cultures with which he was uh, imbued growing up. You know, he, he spoke about the England challenge. John, I see that you've done you know, a really good interview, if I don't, don't mind me saying, with the US manager, mm. um, Greg Berhalter. What were your impressions of him? <laughs> really, really nice guy. I've met him two or three times and he was really impressive and he's, blimey, we shouldn't underestimate that he's under a lot of pressure right now. And I think then that basically there's a lot of expectation on his shoulders and we're four years out from USA joint hosting a tournament. He goes to Qatar with, I'm pretty sure it will be, we obviously don't know yet for sure until everyone names their squad, but it'll be the youngest squad at the tournament this month, which is quite a challenge. Christian Pulisic is their talisman and leader, and he's a megastar in the States. Other than that, they don't have huge amount of World Cup experience, and he is Definitely, definitely a manager who he was drawing comparisons to what he inherited and what he's been trying to build to to the way that Gareth Southgate has, has done at England. You know, he was full of praise for Gareth Southgate and the help that it also indeed that Gareth has, has given him to try and bring through young players, to try and give them their voice. And he doesn't shy away from that. I think he's immensely proud of the fact that he's the first man to represent the United States as both player and coach. So 
he knows, and it, it was interesting to see him break down the tournament into two, basically. He said, look, we've got to finish second in this group. We've got to see this group as a, as a sort of just this tournament, get out of the group and then face it next time as 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 kind of a knockout in, in a separate second tournament, if you like. And I, I, I think he thinks that, you know, he, they've got the chance to do this. You know, he's quite upfront about it. He said, look, we're not expected to... To, to perhaps have incredible results if you look at the rankings. But actually, when on earth do World Cup results ever go to plan in the group? They never do. And he's he's absolutely right. And he basically says, if we can take advantage of that, then why not? Why couldn't we go further and sort of build on that, really? Mm. So, you know, he's a fascinating character. And he's one of those really eloquent managers who you enjoy speaking to and basically offers, you know, real insight into his build up and his philosophy and the way he sees it for his team so it's, it was you know it was an interesting chat for me mm. you know back to you know the chat with owen dom you know he doesn't really regard england or germany as first tier favorites you know i think he's looking at france and brazil and argentina in that area but he says they could still win it um do you agree i mean my head says that they probably won't just just but that's that's influenced by the run of form that England have been through of late where they've they've looked a bit of a mishmash I'm you know con you have to be conscious that a tournament focuses minds and a, a tournament brings teams players together with if they if they start well in particular and Gareth Southgate's record in major tournaments is fantastic the reality a semi-final and um and a final in the in the in the two major tournaments that he's overseen. So yeah, they have a chance. The South Americans are a big unknown, I, to be honest. And you look at Brazil's squad, as we always look at Brazil's squad, and think, wow, they've got so much talent. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they all fire and that they they get the balance right. In fact, they've got the balance spectacularly wrong at, at times in in recent tournaments. Argentina are always a bit of a dark horse. You don't really know what they're going to produce on on the biggest stage and. And and France France are going into this tournament without the, the the midfield that won them the tournament in 2018. I mean, without N'Golo Kante and without Paul Pogba. And as as much as Chumani is a, a fantastic player and will fill a, a big void in there, he can't fill the whole void. He can't do that on his own. This is his first major finals himself. So, and he's 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 been suffering from fatigue at Real Madrid over recent weeks. So, it it may be that. The, it always boils down to momentum when you get there. Yes, quality. We know that there'll be there'll be six or seven teams that have got a, a a real depth of quality there, and it's just whether they stay lucky in terms of injuries, in terms of suspensions. If they build up belief in the group, if they get a decent draw, and then I, I you know you know three or four of them will will reach the semi finals. I'm sure. I don't think there'll be any surprises in the latter latter stages of the tournament, and it'll be the usual suspects competing, but. England would have a chance, but they had to play better than they played recently. Mm, yeah, I, I get the impression that we won't just be talking about football in the next couple of weeks. You know, Sepp Blatter admits that going to Qatar was a um, mistake. Not for human rights issues, though. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. And, you know, FIFA are, as we know, hopelessly compromised when they are attempt to sort of climb into the pulpit and preach to the world. John, what sort of mood are you expecting when you get to Qatar? Blatter's comments were just astounding to me. And they were laughable. I mean, ridiculous. I mean, seriously. Did, did people take him seriously? I mean, it was so outrageous. You know, he deserved back page stories and got it, obviously. But it's going to be a strange one, simply because I think the current FIFA regime are completely, clearly, acutely embarrassed about certain elements of, of, of the award and going to and going to the country. And I do think there's been so much talk, hasn't there, rightly so, about human rights. And I think that that will be continually sort of be a focus. It would kind of, you know, that debate reached boiling point, it felt to me, last week, at the end of last week, when FIFA said just focus on the football and the English FA hit back. And, you know, it's just... So I do wonder at some point, I think that... It, we are going to sort of say to ourselves, is it time to think about the football now? And I'm not sure whether we can really 
but, but mentalize basically if I can get the words out. The the two because I don't I think it's impossible to just focus on the football really because it's a tournament of such controversy. And yet I do think when we get there, normally we get a sort of four, six week break before the end of the Premier League season, a couple of weeks off, a couple of friendlies, and then also a training camp. And this time it's gonna be six days. I mean, it's it's just remarkable. They just fly out, and then a few days later, they're playing their first World Cup match. So I think, in a way, it will be over before we know it. I do think that when the football starts, we will ultimately enjoy the tournament. I think it will be an eye-opener for a lot of people when we go there. And I do think it will be, ultimately, a completely different and a unique tournament that that when when it comes round to the quarterfinals and semi-finals, we'll be going wow, you know, can't wait for the game. But it's on on so many other levels. There's so many issues that just won't go away. That will still dominate press conferences, and rightly so, you know, because we can't can't hide away from it. Will it then, you know, be a game changer for the country? Will it shine a light on? Well, let's see. To me, I'd be surprised. It says in a cynical way, which is a crying shame. Mm, well, it was once also innocent that my first World Cup in 1982, the media were giving a lift to the hotel in the England team bus. Now there's more chance of hitching a ride on the space shuttle. Politicians have always attempted to manipulate football for their own ends, but these finals feel so different. They clearly challenge the conscience of principled observers including players and managers and journalists. Qatar paying so-called supporters to act as state-sponsored stooges demeans everyone associated with it. The World Cup is in dangerous territory and, as we said, the debate will intensify in the coming days. On a personal level, thanks to Owen Hargreaves for his observations and, of course, thanks to Dom and John for their insights. What are your thoughts on the forthcoming World Cup? Please let me know. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.